you would please join me in Romans chapter 13. The book of Romans chapter 13. And as I uh, announced last week and at the beginning of service, we're going to be taking a short time away from our, our study of the book of John to take some time to think through a very important topic, and it's the topic of government, politics. Now, I am fully aware that many today would say that a pastor should not speak about politics from the pulpit. Perhaps you're of that opinion this morning. Some would say that the pastor should only speak on spiritual matters. All that we should talk about is the gospel, matters of justification and sanctification. And while I understand that sentiment, part of my duty as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, is to help God's people to think biblically. It's important that we understand that many of the big divisive issues that are before us today in the political arena are not political issues. Let me say that one more time. It's important that we understand that many of the big divisive issues before us in the political arena today are not political issues. They are first and foremost theological issues that have been politicized. They have been taken up in that arena, but they are first and foremost theological issues. Like what? Matters of abortion? Matters of things pertaining to homosexuality, transgenderism? In other words, they are issues that we want to first consult the scriptures about, not a particular political platform. So that brings me to a question that perhaps some of you would be asking. Why are we doing this? If politics can be so divisive, if some people would disagree with a pastor preaching about politics, then why do it at all and why do it now? I want to give you three quick reasons because I do think that is a fair question to ask. First of all, here at Flatland Bible Church, as you know, we hold to a high view of Scripture. We submit to the authority of the Scriptures and desire that all that we do be shaped by the Scriptures. So part of that high view of Scripture is understanding that God's Word either speaks directly to everything, or it provides us with the wisdom necessary to make God-honoring decisions where it does not speak explicitly towards a particular topic. As I said a bit ago, part of my role as a pastor is to help us to think biblically about everything. There's no such thing as spiritual things over here and things that we deal with in a practical matter in the world over here. As if you're a Christian, everything has a spiritual significance. I do not have the answer to every single issue that we face. Let me tell you that. And I'm not going to pretend to. I don't have the answer to every problem that you might face in your life. And I won't pretend to. However, what I do have is the same thing that you have. A copy of the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of the very living God. And in this book, 
we find all that we need for life and godliness. We find everything. So that is to say that Scripture is not only infallible, inerrant, and authoritative, it is also sufficient. We need the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are enough. So my desire is to help us to be a people who can make sound, biblically informed, God-honoring decisions in every area of life, whether that's raising your children, whether that's in the workplace, or, yes, even in the voting booth. Second, we're doing this to help promote a balanced view of politics. We can fall in a ditch on two sides of the road. When we put our trust in a political party and our hopes rise and fall with that party's success. That's a ditch, my friends. When our hope is in a political party and our hopes rise and fall with that party's success, we can think that if our political party was to fill the White House, sit in the White House and fill, have the majority in Congress and in the Supreme Court, then there would be hope for our nation. That's what our nation needs, is my political party to be in control. Friends, that is error. It is error to think that one political party has it all right, or more importantly, that one political party desires to apply the full counsel of God in all of their dealings. We can also fall in the ditch on the other side, where we just don't care about what happens at all. We sort of stick our head in the sand and say, it's all going to work itself out, God's sovereign. Uh, my vote doesn't really count anyway. I'm never, not really a political person. Nothing that I do could possibly matter. So I don't really keep up with all that stuff. Church, that is also error. That would also be to fall in a ditch. And so what I hope to help us to do is to put politics in its proper place, and understand that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. Long before you are a citizen of the United States of America, you are a citizen of heaven if you are a blood-bought child of God. So as citizens of heaven, we are to think more in terms of right and wrong than right or left. We are to think more in terms of what is right and wrong, not right and left. Third, this one is practical. We're doing this because midterms are right around the corner. We want to go to the voting booth prayerfully and thoughtfully, applying biblical principles in our decision, and we also want to trust in the sovereignty of God that regardless of who's governor, regardless of who controls the house or who sits in the White House, that our faith is in Christ because Christ is king. And you know what? He's not up for a vote. He's not up for re-election. He's not politicking. He's king right now. Now, I would like to set proper expectation for us today. There is so much that we could say about this topic, but I don't want to devote more than today to thinking through this. So, Understand, this is going to be more of an overview than a deep, thorough study. We're going to split our time into two major sections this morning. I want to first look at the role of government. What does the Bible say about the role of government? Because, spoiler alert, it does say something. 
And then we're going to look at what our posture towards government should be. So Romans 13, look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, in this moment for your help. Lord, I, I pray that we would come away from the text this morning with a balanced view of government, but most importantly, loving and knowing the fact that Christ is King and operating with that in mind. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The role of government, the first thing that we want to do is to look at where does government come from? So let's ask that question. Where does the idea of government come from? Who determines the role of government and who grants government its power? You know, if you were to consult our Declaration of Independence, it would answer as follows, quote, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, end quote. In other words, our beloved Declaration of Independence says that government gets its power from the people. And when the people have determined that government is not doing its job, that people have the right to just say, out with this one, we're going to overthrow the government, and we're going to make a whole new government. Now, friends, we might celebrate our Declaration of Independence every year on the 4th of July, but is that idea of government actually biblical? Well, what did our text say? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from the governed. Is that what yours says? Oh, it doesn't. It says, no, there is no authority except from God. This is the first thing that you and I as Christians need to know about the role of government is that it is instituted by God. Fourth bonus reason of why we're doing this is because the Bible talks about it. and Because this is something that God instituted. It's not instituted by man. If it were, man would absolutely have the right 
to dictate government's parameters, to make the determination when it's time for a whole new government and etc. Of course. But the truth of the matter is that government is God's idea. The text tells us that all authority is from God and that the governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Well, okay, sure. Maybe that's true. But Paul is really only talking about good, conservative, Republican governments, right? That's all that Paul has in mind, isn't that right? Well, let's consider the context here. It's important to be reminded of the biblical history of government. In the Bible, we probably would be hard-pressed to find a good government. Beginning here in Romans, in the context of this letter, Paul is writing to people who are under the rule of Nero. Nero became the emperor a few years before the writing of this letter in 54 AD. At the age of 16... Now, how many 16-year-olds are ruling with wisdom and justice, would you imagine? Nero is known for being a self-indulgent, cruel tyrant. Nero had his mom killed. Nero would hang Christians on poles and light them on fire to light his garden parties. However... At his, in his earlier years, probably actually around the time of the writing of Romans, because it was probably written towards the end of 60 AD, historians would say that he was actually fairly moderate in his rulings and in his dealings. But pay, Nero was a pagan. Even if he were fairly moderate at this time, he was a pagan. And further yet, the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul would understand that right around the corner was the government-sanctioned persecution of Christians under Nero. Despite that fact, Paul writes that every person is to be subject to the governing authorities and that the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. What? Nero? Instituted by God? What are you saying? Now we see that to be true all throughout Scripture. Let me give you just a few examples. Back in Exodus, where were the Israelites in captivity? Was it in some conservative Christian land? Or was it under the wicked pagan Pharaoh in Egypt? There's a wicked ruler there. But Guess what God says in Exodus 9.16 about Pharaoh? He says that he is the one who raised up Pharaoh and that he did it to display his power through Pharaoh. Wicked, pagan Pharaoh was serving the ends of Almighty God. In Jeremiah chapter 25, God is saying that he's going to raise up King Nebuchadnezzar to come exact his judgment on his people. And in the same chapter, he says that he's going to judge Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And God's saying he's going to bring in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to bring in Babylon. They're going to wreck shop in Israel. And then he's going to turn around and judge Babylon for doing that to Israel. Who's in control here, really? 
Was it King Nebuchadnezzar who thought he was a conquering, mighty warrior king? Or was it God? And all of these kings, their hearts were like streams of water in the hands of Almighty God. Because that's what the Proverbs tell us. What about the time that Jesus was born? Maybe they were just not as enlightened during that time, right? Things started to get a little bit better. But when the, Jesus was born, who was king? It was King Herod. Did he say, hey, oh, Jesus is born. Oh, let's throw a great big party. That's great. Let's call a feast. Everyone take the week off of work. Jesus is born. Is that, is that what Herod did? Or did he order the murder of every child, every boy who was under the age of two? Which one was it? Well, let's not forget that it was the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate, who John tells us delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Yet, with all of this history, within this context, Paul writes that governing authorities are instituted by God. Friends, that is still true today. Whether it is Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Nero or George Washington or Joe Biden, all governing authorities are instituted by God. So what is government's God-given role then if he's instituting government? The answer is twofold. And again, this could be way more detailed, but two very simple roles that we find in this text First, the role of government is to uphold good. Paul tells us that government is not a terror to good conduct, but is God's servant for good. The word there for servant is diakonos. Do you know what that word is translated like elsewhere? Deacon. That government is God's deacon. And how does Paul teach us that government is supposed to deacon? By upholding good. Now there are a lot of ways, if you look at verse 4, there are a lot of ways that people interpret that, and all of which probably have some truth there. But for our purpose, I just want to focus in on the fact that here it's telling us that government is to uphold good. For he is God's servant for your good. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing a very similar thing as Paul does here. And he tells us that rulers are sent to praise those who do good. Now, what would be the good that is spoken of here? So obviously, it's good as God defines it. How does God define good? That's what they're supposed to uphold. First and foremost, as it pertains to upholding righteousness and justice in the land, that is the role of government. That is what they are to do. I want to read you an example of this from Deuteronomy. We're told in that passage that this is the law concerning kings, because if you remember, Israel did not initially have a king. They were a theocracy. They were ruled directly by God, but then they asked for a king, and God gave them a king, King Saul. And this is the law way before that ever happened. God sets forth the law for what a king is supposed to do and how he is supposed to rule. Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, no, that's not what it says. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of the Constitution. No, that's not what it says. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law. The king was supposed to copy down all of the law in front of Levitical priests so that they could make sure he didn't leave stuff out. He was supposed to write it all down and then hold on to it and keep it with his person and read it all the time. Why? So that he could apply that law both to his life but also to the governing of the kingdom. Do you think that God only meant that for just kings at that time? Or do you think that God has instituted government with the idea in mind that you are supposed to govern according to the law of God? I don't know. My Bible tells me that God doesn't change. Government is supposed to govern according to God's law. But this is also necessarily implied in the fact that government is instituted by God. It's not as if God is creating government and instituting that, that authority and then saying, hey guys, just kind of figure it out. You know, if you could just, you know, have moderate, kind of like a, a moderate tax rate, you know, then, then we're good. God is instituting government to uphold good, to uphold morality. You can think back to when Israel was given the law. There are laws within the Mosaic law that are often referred to as civil law or case law. They were laws that were meant to be used to govern the people in the civic arena. They were civil laws. There were laws about lawsuits. There was all kinds of laws. You know, there are even laws in there about building. You know, you ever had to make an addition in your home or something, and you needed to get a building permit, do you know where they get that idea from? The law of Moses. I'm serious. It's in there. Go read it. Just as an exa another example, where do you think that we got the idea of outlawing murder and theft? You think that we were just so enlightened that we came up with that idea? Or did that come from the law of God, from the Ten Commandments? Government's role is to be a force for good and in this way, government functions as a sort of common grace and a restrainer of evil. Now, we might have our feelings and opinions about our current administration, be that what it is, but we would not want to see life without a government. There were people who were crying out and clamoring for defunding the police. Friends, you do not want that. I'm probably preaching to the choir in here, but we actually want government. Government is good. You know how I can say that? Because God did it. And if God hadn't done it, it might not be good, but God did it, so it's good. And he did it for our good. So God has placed government over nations to be a force for good and a restrainer of evil. But how is government supposed to restrain evil? This is amazing. Look at verse 4 again. If you do wrong... Be afraid. 
for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. There it is again. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has placed a sword in the hands of government to punish evil. He does not write that the government is given the ability to give people a spanking. He says they're not given a belt, they're given a sword. What do you think the sword is for? It's for capital punishment. This is another reason, by the way, why as Christians, a biblical understanding of capital punishment is that we are in favor of that. Because government has been given the sword. What do you do with swords? You open letters with a sword? Of course not. Government is given the ability to exact the death penalty when necessary. God has put a sword in the hand of Caesar. Notice something else here. Paul says once again that government is the servant of God. So he's the servant of God for your good, and he's the servant of God to execute the wrath of God. This is another reason why we can see here that government is supposed to operate according to God's law, is that they are avengers who carry out the wrath of God on wrongdoers. They're supposed to, that's part of upholding righteousness in a society. Lawbreakers are ultimately responsible before God Almighty for having broken the law, and as such, God punishes wrongdoing through the authorities that he has instituted. Have you ever thought of your government this way? Maybe you have. But that's, this is the same thing that Peter says when he writes about it that I referenced earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2. Punishing evil goes hand in hand with promoting good. If you are seeking to uphold righteousness, it is going to involve punishing unrighteousness. Again, all of this is a ton, supposed to be done according to God's law, not according to man's own invention. Perhaps you're thinking, but what if this is not what happens? As you and I know full well, the government might be the servant of God, but the government is made up of sinful people, sinful men who are elected into office and do not become saints when they are elected into office. They are sinful people in office. So what about when they don't abide by their God-given roles and responsibility? Well, we've already referenced a few of those examples. Pharaoh, Israel's kings. Have you ever read Judges, First and Second Kings? They are replete with example after example of government failing, of leaders who failed and failed and failed and failed. Whether it be a governing body deciding that, they, deciding that they want to redefine good and bad, or they want to control a people, or they want to be worshipped, whichever it is, history has many examples for us of wicked rulers who abandon what God has called them to do. So what would God say to that? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, 
who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Why do Christians hate abortion? Because God pronounces a woe on those who deprive the innocent of the right. Remember when I referenced Jeremiah 25 a bit ago, God was saying he was going to send Babylon to exact his judgment on his people. And then he went on to say that he would also judge Babylon for acting sinfully. God deals with wicked rulers. You understand, he was sent King Nebuchadnezzar to judge his people. What what was he doing there? He was putting a sword in the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, saying, go and avenge the wrath of God on Israel. But that didn't give King Nebuchadnezzar a free pass then, to say, well, I'm just a minister of God doing this here. He then judges Babylon. We find that in Isaiah, that there's the prophecy of the Medes are going to be raised up, and God says he's raising them up. He's raising up the Medes to come and judge Babylon. God's the one in control. God deals with wicked rulers, even when it does not look like he does from our very limited vantage point. Make no mistake that God is not turning a blind eye to wicked rulers. He might use them to accomplish his good purposes, but they don't get a free pass. They might think themselves to be above the law, but they are not above God's law. So then, with this very brief look at government's role as defined by God, and knowing that they often fail to fill that role, what should be our attitude towards government? And as it pertains to our country and its politics, let's look at our attitude towards government. Let's go back to verse 1. Let every person be quick to scoff the president when they see him doing things they don't like. Did you say that? Or did it say, let every person be subject to the governing authorities? Every person is literally every soul. Christians and pagans alike are to submit to the governing authorities. Isn't that such a hard thing to hear? Knowing how government can so often abuse their authority, we would like to think that we surely only have to submit to governing authorities when they're Christians and they're doing the right thing. Think again. It bears repeating, church, that this is written when Nero is emperor. Even if he were more fair and moderate at this time, he's still a pagan. He's not ruling righteously and with justice. He's not a Christian. This is written to people who have been under the rule of Roman Empire. Now, I'm no history buff, but I know enough to know that the Roman Empire is not known for their righteousness and their goodness and their fairness. They're known for quite the opposite. But what does Jesus say whenever they asked him about taxes? You remember, they were asking, what's your view of government, Jesus? Did he say that he was here to teach people to ignore taxation because Caesar was an evil, vile man? Or did he say to render under Caesar what Caesar's? As a matter of fact, Jesus did not at all portray himself to be a revolutionary who came to set government straight. 
You know how many opportunities he had to actually do that? He's standing in front of Pontius Pilate. Did he say, I'm going to teach my people to overthrow this government? No, what did he say? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this worldly system, nor does it function anything like this world's kingdoms, nor is it dependent upon this world's governing authorities. Christ instead submitted himself to the governing authorities. And what did that look like in his life? Crucifixion. Think of it, friends. Paul here is writing to the church in Rome. It was the Romans who carried out the crucifixion of Jesus. If ever there was an opportunity to say, hey guys, remember our Lord. Remember what they did to him. Remember and rebel and resist them. Fight against them. Overthrow the government. Revolt against them. If ever there was an opportunity to do that, it's literally when you're writing to the Romans. And when you're talking about government. But instead, what does Paul say? Let everybody be subject to the governing authorities. Don't you know how evil they are, Paul? How could you say something like this? Second half, verse 1. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So governing authorities need to be reminded that their authority and position are both granted by God. But as Christians, we also need to be reminded that they are there because God put them there. They are there because God put them there. You remember all of the hoopla about the stolen election? You remember that? Whether that's true or false is neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that God put our president there. God did that. And knowing that God has instituted this authority is supposed to motivate Christian submission. I challenge you to, from this text, find some wiggle room. Find some wiggle room there. He says, submit to the government. When you submit to government then, it's not an endorsement of their actions. It's not saying, I love what you guys are doing. I think you guys are just, y'all are doing a bang up job, you know? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my loyalty. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to respect you because I love what y'all are doing. Of course not. Would Paul have, have agreed with the Roman Empire and their rule? Of course not. Did Jesus agree with what Pilate was doing? This was the most unjust murder. Killing literally God in the flesh. They're not siding with the government. What's happening there is saying, Christ is my king. And he commands me to submit to government authority because he put them there. Do you know Jesus said almost that exact thing in front of Pilate? Pilate saying, don't you know I have the authority to let you go? I have the authority to let you live. What did Jesus say? You have no authority except for what's been given to you from heaven. But is he acknowledging God gave you authority? So he submitted to that because God gave him authority. And so it should be with you and I. 
when we submit to government, it's not acknowledging and affirming their wicked actions. It's instead acknowledging that God has instituted this authority. And your highest allegiance is to him because you are a citizen of heaven. So that requires of you a different ethic, a different morality, a different way of thinking about the government and thinking about politics. It's because this is an institution that God has created. And the authority structures that he has put in place. Church, there will be things that we do not like that our government does. This text doesn't say love everything they do. This text doesn't say everything they do should make you happy. But God does not give us any leeway to say, hey, you know what? If you really just don't like their policies, if you really just don't want to pay a higher tax rate, you know, if you're sick of inflation, if you're sick of paying so much at the gas pump, then feel free to rebel. Go ahead. There's no room for that here in this text or in the message of Scripture. In fact, look at verse 2. Therefore, that means because God put that authority there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. To resist the authority structures that God has ordained is to be found resisting God himself. When you say, I don't think I should have to pay these taxes, so you cheat and you lie, you're resisting God's authority. When we look at the speed limit, I know this sounds so trivial, but when you look at the speed limit and you say, I think I'll go as fast as I want to go, what are you resisting? resisting the authority that God has put in place. Christians of all people are to be model citizens, not because we agree with everything coming out of the White House, but because we love God. And he told us to submit to the authorities that he has put in place. We live in a world where God has instituted various forms of authority for the home, Men are the head of the household. In the church, it's the elders. In a nation, it's the government. Now, men, let me ask you. Are you modeling for your wife and children what biblical submission looks like? Would you be content with their submission the same way that you submit to the government? Would you be happy with sinful criticism from them the way that you have done towards our government? When they hear the way that you talk about our president, do they get a sense from you that you're mourning for the spiritual condition of our nation or that it's good and funny to make fun of people on the other side of the political aisle? Which one is it? I think if we're being honest, there are probably a lot of us who need to ask forgiveness from and repent in front of our families. Friends, this is a hard check for all of us, myself included. I don't stand here as better than anyone. And why? Why is this? It's because to resist what God has ordained is to resist God himself. 
Do you want to be found doing that? I don't. So let's ask an important question here. Does this mean that no matter what the government says to do, that we are to obey them? Do we give them a blank check of submission? Of course not. We must obey God rather than men. This is our second posture towards government, is that we must obey God rather than men. If government is found to be outlawing what God commands or commanding what God forbids, then we must obey God rather than men. That's what the pastor in China who is currently in prison for disobeying government would call faithful disobedience. Now listen carefully. This requires great wisdom and careful thought before we hastily resist the authority that God has ordained. Further, government behaving in that manner does not negate our continued submission in other parts of our life. What do I mean? If they come out with a new law where fathers are no longer allowed to spank their children or you are no longer allowed to pray in public, we have a duty before God to respectfully disobey that command because God has commanded these things for us. But no further. We do not then have the right to say, well, now I don't have to listen to anything these people tell me to do. I'm not paying my taxes. I'm not going to register my vehicle. I'm not doing anything else they want me to do. That is an attitude of rebellion. And it's not an attitude of godly wisdom. Think about it. Paul, at this point, has already been treated unjustly by the government. He's already been treated unjustly. He's already been persecuted by the government. He's already been imprisoned. But he still says, submit to the governing authorities. And he goes as far as telling us, pay your taxes in verses 6 and 7. Well, I tell you, if I was the president of H&R Block, this would be a great marketing scheme. You want to be a good Christian, pay your taxes. Well, you would sell out of your services. But have you ever thought about that when you're paying your taxes? That this is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God that I submit to the government. I want to be equally clear here, though, that there are indeed times when it is not only optional, but it is necessary that we disobey the dictates of the government. And again, that line is crossed when they forbid something that God has commanded or they have commanded us to do something that God forbids. We won't go into great detail about all of the examples, but there are so many examples in Scripture of this very thing happening as far back as Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. Pharaoh says to the Hebrew midwives, as soon as a child, a son is born, kill that baby boy. And the text tells us that the Hebrew midwives feared God, so they did not do it. And do you know what happens when Pharaoh comes around and asks, why didn't you do that? I gave you a command. You didn't do it. What's going on? Do you know what they said? Oh, well, these Hebrew women, they're hardcore. They give birth so fast. By the time we make it in the room, they've already given birth to the baby. That's what they said. It's amazing. You know what that tells us? They lied. They lied. 
Because the text says that they didn't do it because they feared God. They made a conscious choice not to do it. And then they lied about what happened. So what did God do? He blessed them. You want to take your theology for a loop, read that passage, Exodus chapter 1. Not only did they disobey Pharaoh, they lied to him. Exodus chapter 1, verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God dealt favorably with the midwives because they were obeying God rather than men. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What happened there? Well, they were told they need to bow down to the statue or they were going to be thrown in the fire. Did they bow down to the statue? No, they were thrown into the fire. Do you know what that is an example of? Government has commanded something to, them to do something that God has forbidden. And so they disobeyed. I just have to read the response because it's just so great. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? We have no need to answer you in this matter. If you want to kill us, go ahead. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. God's going to save us definitely, even if he doesn't. We're still not going to do it. We're still not going to bow down. That's faithful disobedience. I love that story because they come out and they didn't even smell burned. Isn't that amazing? What about the disciples in Acts the religious leaders, they're furious with the disciples because they keep preaching Christ even though they were told not to. And how did they respond? We must obey God rather than men. And so it is today, my friends. You and I must obey God rather than men. If we are commanded to do something that God forbids or forbidden to do something that God commands, then we not only have the option, we must faithfully, respectfully Disobey those commands. Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. But that's not all. We must also trust God rather than men. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we are citizens of heaven. Brothers and sisters, that means that we choose Christ over Caesar any day of the week. Without even a second thought. It means that we submit to Caesar because we're submitting to Christ. It means that we operate in this lifetime as citizens of the United States of America with a different set of priorities because our ultimate allegiance is not to the flag, it's to Christ. We must not put our trust in government, in a political party, or in a politician. The Democratic Party would have you put your trust in government with the hope that government will take care of all of your physical needs through different programs. The Republican Party would have you put your trust in government with the hope that if, it, if we just get enough conservatives in government, we'll be able to make this a God-fearing nation. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. We do not have one political party in our nation that is more interested in glorifying God than advancing their own political careers. 
voting a particular party into office is not going to save this nation. It's not going to happen. The only hope this nation has is not a revolution, it's a reformation. We do not need to return to some utopian how it used to be. We need a revival. The only hope this nation has or any other nation has is God bringing people from death to life. If more Christians were as loud and outspoken about salvation as inflation, how many people would be hearing the gospel? Understand this. Jesus is not a mascot for any political party. Jesus Christ is king. Republicans and Democrats alike will bow the knee to him, either in this life or in the next. So when you go to the voting booth, you don't go with the first priority in mind to vote right or left. But your first priority in mind is right and wrong. What are the issues and what would God care about that's before us? Maybe that means that you vote a particular direction. Great. But you understand our primary allegiance is not a political party. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And his kingdom is not of this world. And there are different priorities in his kingdom. So we care a lot more about the slaughter of unborn babies than we care about our taxes. We care a lot more about so-called gay marriage than our energy bills. Make no mistake, my friends, mainstream media would have you believe that those are political issues, but they are theological issues long before they are political. And just because a politician calls himself pro-life or pro-choice does not mean that that is a political issue. That is an issue that God cares deeply about. And as citizens of his kingdom, we must also. So when we vote, we are looking to cast our vote for the candidate that we believe will most adhere to their God-given role of upholding good and punishing evil. But at the end of the day, if the person that we voted for does not win, we don't sulk, we don't hang our heads, we don't get angry. Instead, we trust in the sovereign plan of God, knowing that whoever is in the White House is there because God put him there. Further, there is no policy there is no piece of legislation. There is nothing at all that any government can do to stop the hand of God from accomplishing every one of his purposes. Do you know that the church of Almighty God thrives in China today? And they hate Christians. They lock them in prison and they're thriving. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the White House. We want to seek the good of our, of our city. We want to seek the welfare of our city. But regardless of who sits in the Oval Office, Christ sits on the throne. So let us champion the never-ending rule and reign of Christ louder and longer than we do any desire of any political party. That's what Christ would call us to. But I would be remiss if I did not include Paul's injunction for us to pray for our leaders. I think if we're being honest, it's the easiest thing in the world for any of us to turn on the news, hear of what's happening in our government, and shake our heads and say, what a you-know-what. 
I think if we're being honest, we're probably guilty of criticizing our leaders exponentially more than we have prayed for them. It's easy to do when you turn on the news and you hear your favorite supposed news anchor bashing the political opponent. Well, that gets you fired up, doesn't it? But let's hear the word of the Lord on this matter. First of all, then, a matter of utmost importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, God's ultimate priority is the salvation of men and our ultimate priority is inflation coming down. You see, the priorities of our kingdom, of our king, they are different than ours. So is this your attitude towards our current administration? That's a question between you and the Lord. Are you offering up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all who are in high positions? We ought to because this text says that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The idea that Paul is conveying to Timothy is that this is of utmost importance. Why? Because God has placed these authority structures in place. He has given them their authority. Let's stand. Let me leave you with this. Right now, today, at this very hour, not in some future happening, but right now, Christ is reigning. Christ is king. That's happening right now. He is sitting on the throne of David right now. His rule has no end. We are not looking forward to a day when Christ reigns. He reigns now. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we don't see everything in subjection to him right now, but God has already placed everything in subjection under his feet. That's what we're told. But then Philippians 2 reminds us of our focus, of our king, that he emptied himself. Our politicians seek their own agendas, their own advancement. What did Christ do? Our good king. What did he do? Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And because of that, Philippians tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, he is working together billions and trillions of different little things for the glory of of his name. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you left so much on the table, but I pray that you would use what we talked about this morning for all of our good, that we would all search our hearts and understand that submission to the government 
is truly submission to you. That we would be prayerful people who don't put our trust in, in politics, but put our trust in the one true and living God. Please help us in these things. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.